Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This podcast comes live from the Latitude Festival, where just recently I did an on-stage Kermode on Film with a brilliant selection of guests. Coming up on the show, Poet Laureate Simon Armitage, Deborah Francis-White, The Guilty Feminist, and Richard Curtis, writer of the current hit release, Yesterday. So sit back and enjoy Kermode on Film live from Latitude. Oh, and a word of warning. This episode contains some, well, let's be honest, a lot of strong language. We have a fully packed show today. It's an extra long one. Uh, so I want a lot of excitement in the room. I want to get some applause going from now. Get it, build it nice and low so that the mics get ready for it. And a big cheer as I welcome to the stage Commode on Film, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, hello, everybody. How are you all doing? Oh, good. We're lively this morning. Um, are you all enjoying uh, Latitude, having a good time? Yes. How many of you have been bitten in very awkward places by mosquitoes? Yes. I, I currently have a mosquito bite on the side of my face, and it makes me look like that picture of Steve Bannon that somebody said looked like Steve Bannon had a rat crawling up inside his head. Um, so we have, a, we have a packed show for you today. We have three fabulous guests. Um, the whole thing will be available uh, to download from all your usual places, Acast, iTunes, however you do it. Uh, so let's start by welcoming to the stage, I can't believe I'm saying this, I'm so thrilled, Poet Laureate, Simon Armitage. Okay, so... Theoretically, this discussion will revolve around film, but there will be other things uh, we'll be doing as well. Firstly, Simon, because this is the first time I've seen you since, since you were... What is the phrase? Laureated? Yeah, let's go with that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the first time I've seen you since you were laureated. What happened? Was there, like a, was there a ceremony? Did you get a hat? Was there a gown? Did somebody with a sword do something? Did yeah. you meet the Queen? I did meet the Queen, yeah. Um, you sound thrilled about that. <laughs> I was very thrilled. It was very exciting. It was, uh, it was sort of fairy tale stuff. Um, well, there's a whole series of um, backstage goings on, and then that culminates, I understand, after a series of letters and recommendations between uh, the powers that be and the powers that be, uh, the Prime Minister rings up and uh, offers you the, the post. So that was... Uh, so you got called by the Prime Minister? I did, yeah. I was trying to remember which one it was. <laughs> and, uh, 
it was uh, it was t- it was t- yeah Theresa May. Um, so that was six or seven weeks ago. So stupid question: Were you expecting the call, or were you like at was home I in the shower? That's and the what phone you're rang. Yeah. And no, I'd been t- I'd been told to expect the call, and it, it got put back uh, a couple of times. I think she was quite busy, uh, <laughs> and then. Um, yeah, it's the, I've, I've heard people talk about this before. The phone rings and somebody's on the line saying the next voice that you'll hear will be the Prime Minister's voice. And it was the Prime Minister. And she was, she was very chatty and we uh, engaged in conversation about uh, geography because we're both geography graduates, I think. So I, I got the impression that it was probably the, the most enjoyable thing that she'd had to do <laughs> that, that, that week. Did you ask her how things were going for her? Did you say, you know, enough about me, what about you? I knew how things were going for her. <laughs> I think it was the week before she, she, officially, uh, she officially stepped down. But, uh, no, she, I mean, it was an interesting conversation because she, she made it clear that the, you know, the laureateship, the, 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 there's no actual job, really. Um, it's very much down to the individual. So, uh, up until Ted Hughes, Ted Hughes, the last lifetime laureate and after after ted died then it became a a, a decade long tenure and uh, and i'm just embarking on that on that journey now. so you've got 10 years as being the poet laureate and and for those who don't know which probably includes me what exactly does it involve doing you're an ambassador for poetry you have to write there are certain things that you have to write for certain events well there are no obligations whatsoever but that doesn't mean to say that there aren't any expectations okay. so it's it's always been a role that's been associated with you know writing for occasions uh, some of which have been royal occasions uh, others more recently in you know with le- re- recent laureateships have been um, sort of big public national events and, and so on and so forth but you know in some ways that's I, you know I've been doing that anyway for for the best part of 30 years I've always seen myself as a as a public poet trying to engage with things that are, are going on in the everyday world. So um, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to have to break stride too much on, on that front. Um, and then the, 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 thing, the thing that people seem to know most about, or be most interested in, is the, is the sherry. Uh, there's the a sherry. There's a, gift of, there's a gift of sherry, yeah. I suddenly found that uh, I've got a you lot of sherry-drinking friends, yeah. Um, <laughs> It's it, it it's a butt of sack. A butt. A butt. Uh, yeah, not a sack of butt. I think that <laughs> no, that might be something quite different. Yeah, a a butt, which is a barrel of sack, uh, which is uh, a particular kind of of sherry. And, and and back to the original laureate, or some you know people say that he was the first laureate, John Dryden. Uh, back then there was an official arrangement between. Uh, the, the crown of Spain and the crown of Britain and the, and, right. the, and the sherry was actually part of the payment. And then I think in about <laughs> 1790, there was a poet called uh, Henry James Pye who decided that he didn't want the sherry, he wanted the money instead. Uh, he's probably a Yorkshireman. <laughs> I can say that. And uh, So he got the money. I, it, it, I don't know whether it's £27 or £270. And the whole thing fell into abeyance and then it was, it was reinstituted in... Um, with t- with Ted Hughes in nineteen in the nineteen eighties as sherry rather than as money yeah and so you, you you're invited up to Jerez in uh, Spain to choose to choose your barrel and uh, not not yeah to choose your barrel and uh, you they write your name on it and it's seven hundred and fifty 
bottles. And have so, you done it yet? No, uh, October, so... So in October, you're going to go to Spain to write your name on a barrel of sherry. It's, it's, it's harder work than that. <laughs> I have to go around tasting them first <laughs> to decide which ones uh, I like. And, um, yeah, and then I think they, uh, I don't know the official term, decant off uh, 75 bottles a year and, 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 and send them over. And previous, laureate, previous laureates have used them as gifts and as ways of, of raising money right. or just to get pickled. Uh, over over ten years. Was there any part of your childhood self that could ever imagined this situation? No, um, no. I mean, um, absolutely not. Uh, and that would be something I would share with most of my teachers as well. I think. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, Are you still in touch with any of your teachers? I am actually. Yeah, and I'm giving a. A kind of homecoming reading in uh, in Huddersfield. Homecoming. I still live there, uh, but, but uh, I'm, I'm homestaying. Yeah, homestaying okay. reading. Yeah, and um, I'm hoping that they're, they're they're going to come along. And, and and you know, like most people that you speak to, particularly people who write, uh, you know, they have very fond memories of, of particular teachers who were very yeah. encouraging uh, about literature and, and so on and so forth and that's true in my case. Um, when you got the the poet laureate, for which I, I take some credit, because obviously. I've known you for ages, and I've always thought you should have it. Um, I, I, I wanted to send you a tweet, but you're not on Twitter. But I tweeted a picture of you and me at the Comsat Angels reunion gig, saying the only other Comsat Angels fan in the world is now Poet Laureate. <laughs> do you still... Because you, you and I had a kind of standoff at one point. You wrote a book about, um, about your love of music and being in bands called Gig which I shamelessly ripped off from my current book, How Does It Feel? Thanks very much. Yeah, how, in what way is that a standoff? No, no, that wasn't the standoff. The standoff was about... No, no, I just ripped you off. The standoff was about which one of us was the biggest Comsat Angels No, fan. I think you definitely, uh, you definitely take that accolade. You, you own some of their equipment. I do, you? and yeah. I bought it. I didn't steal it. So do you still, do you still love the Comsats like you always did? I absolutely do, yeah. I'm still unembarrassed about my love of music. I'm of that generation which will uh, talk openly about how much, you know, the, the relevance and the importance of, of music in my life and how it's meant just as much as, uh, 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 as literature has done. And um, I've also gone back to uh, playing vinyl recently. And so, you know, they're, they're an obvious sort of go-to go-to band because I've got all the vinyl and yeah. Uh, yeah yeah no completely still mesmerized by the whole thing are you still playing with your band that you reformed whilst writing gig is it scaremongers the scaremongers yeah we're, we're very um, got a laugh I mean it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> must have come to one of the gigs <laughs> we played here actually uh, we, we, we played here in a in a in a venue in the woods that I've never seen since oh wow yeah, it was like the, the, how did you go down the Bracken arena or something uh, how did we go down we, we were led Legendary. Interesting word that, isn't it? We're very underground. We're very underground. <laughs> yeah. you, you're really to be in the know uh, to, uh, to appreciate what's going on fully with the band. And that includes uh, band members. Yeah. And because this is theoretically a film podcast, and I know that when you, because you and I used to do the Mark Radcliffe show together, Mark and Marcher, the Graveyard Shift, as it was known, out of Manchester. And I was there talking about films, and you were there doing poetry, but we did talk about uh, films. Are you still enthusiastic about cinema? Do you still go to the pictures? 
I do, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think like probably a lot of people have got quite lazy. You know, TVs have got bigger and they sit there in the corner of the room and it's, you know, it's probably easier just to click a button than it is to get in the car to uh, to go down to the to the Odeon. But, um, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I've, I've seen one or two films. What have you seen recently? I can see you struggling to think of a film that you've seen recently in the cinema. What was the last thing you saw in a cinema? Okay, that's a good question. So the last film, uh, I'm not going to be able to remember the title. Okay. But it's about, it's about uh, two young lads in Scotland uh, at the height of the rave culture. Beats. It's Beats. Beats. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, saw that in Leeds about three or four weeks ago. And what did you think? Um, I was I was slightly disappointed with the um, film, uh, but. <laughs> But, but there was. But you thought the cinema was nice <laughs> and the toilet facilities were tip top. Actually, there was an incredible rave scene in the middle yeah. of the film, and that, that was astonishing. And uh, I don't think I've ever seen 10 minutes in a film which more accurately represented that era and that lifestyle yeah. and that sensation. So, uh, for that reason alone, it was, it was worth going to see. Has anyone here seen Beat? Okay, well, it's really... A recherche choice. No, it's really... I've never understood what that means. What does recherche actually mean? Uh, it means um, of choice, doesn't it? Well-researched. I don't know. I literally choice. don't know. I used it in a sentence once, and somebody looked at me quizzically because I thought it meant something else. So it means of choice. What is this, Dictionary Corner? No, it's just... You just you're the poet laureate, Simon. Who else am I going to ask? No, That's I, literally your job. It's... It is not literally my job. I, it, it, it shades into definition on occasion. I, I would give you that. Okay, well, if you haven't seen Beats, I think it is well worth seeing. There is this sequence in the middle. Of, the whole film is in black and white, but there is this sequence in the middle of it in which they're in a sort of trance rave uh, situation. And, uh, and I have never been in a trance rave situation or, 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 or any of the things that go with it. And the film turns into, and it almost turns into like a scene from Altered States, the Ken Russell film. And I did think for the first time, oh, I understand what being out of your head dancing to trance music must be like as a result of that bit of the film, which I thought was brilliant. Yeah, no, I completely, I completely agree. It was a very sort of transcendent moment yeah. in the film, and uh, you know, the, the colours are all turned up. It becomes very, uh, it becomes a kind of a sort of fantasia in, yeah. the, in, the, in the middle of the film. What's your favourite film of all time? My favourite film of all time is. Um, Oh, I don't know. What have you seen more? That, what do you go back to? If, say okay, you're, say yeah, you're at home, okay, okay. you don't have to take a phone yeah. call from Theresa May because yeah. she's doing other stuff. Yeah. What would you put on? You know what? I would probably watch any of the... This doesn't sound like a very laureate choice, but I, w I would probably watch any of the Bourne films, the first three Bourne films. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and... Um, it, it, it's not just because of the, the sort of stylized action sequence and, and so on and so forth. There's something, particularly about the first film, uh, which is very upsetting, and it's to do with identity. Yeah. He doesn't know who he is, and that, that's, a, that's an inc incredibly powerful motif in a film. It even starts uh, with him floating, uh, almost dead, in the sea, in this sort of amniotic fluid. His, his name is Bourne. Uh, you know, and he, he's dragged out of the sea and he's given this strange... And the film is called The Born Identity. Yeah, and this sort of strange reverse um, birth in the, in the opening scene where they, they take out of his, I think, out of his arm uh, some, some kind of magnetic tag. It's, 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 yeah. it's, I, I, I don't know if the original 
Or is it Robert Ludlum who wrote the... the, the yeah, and then the films, that the, 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 the sequels are directed by Paul Greengrass, but the first uh, one is directed by the, uh, Doug Lyman. Doug yeah. Lyman, thank you. Well, I've, I've, just, I've never got tired of, uh, of watching those. Oh, oh and also, uh, anything by Richard Curtis. <laughs> <laughs> we, we are going to be doing top five Richard Curtis films later on in the podcast, just, just to be clear. And do you, do you think that... The, the movies that you're watching now are few and far between as they are. Do you are you part of this? Oh, the golden age of cinema. I think we're living through a golden age now. I think we're living through a better age of animation than we've ever been in before. I think there are more and more diverse films. And people who say, oh, it's all superhero movies. No, it isn't. It's maybe all superhero movies at the local multiplex. But there's. I think we're in a. I think we're in a real golden period. You can see more international cinema now than ever before. You can watch it at home. You can watch it in the cinema. You can. You know, the opportunities are endless. I wonder if that's something that is almost true of every art form at the moment. Uh, I hear people talking about music in those terms. I hear people talking about uh, TV drama in those terms as well. Do you um, watch a lot of TV drama? I, yeah, I, I do. And uh, actually, when, when you were asking me about my favourite film, I, I, I mean, it's not a film, but I, I, I probably would want to go on to talk about Big Little Lies, yeah. uh, which I, I, I honestly think the first series, anyway, I haven't finished watching the second series, is in my view one of the greatest things ever made for the for the small screen. Um, incredibly um, powerful, moving, upsetting, uh, fantastic female characters, all centred around squabbles at the school gates that are then impacting back into into people's lives, into these kind of rich, powerful lives of of Monterey. Uh, housewives and their, and their husbands so yeah absolutely astonishing and you've made a program with well, many programs for television I remember I read and it may even have been in gig that you made something that then I was reviewing on television and you said you were so scared you ended up watching it from behind the sofa yeah it was um it was a, a, a TV I mean I made lots of TV documentaries with some kind of written poetic component or I've written song lyrics for them uh, and this was a film in, in that genre, and it was called Pornography the Musical, uh, where we'd attempted to uh, make an, a, an earnest documentary uh, about the, the lives and experience of women in the sex industry. Mm. And uh, you, I think you quite rightly pointed out on, it was Late Review or something like that, that um, you know, it, 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 wasn't a, it wasn't a huge success. I was actually referring in the book to the fact that it was TV you needed to watch from behind the settee. Right. It, uh, it was advertised by, I think it was Channel 4, as the most uh, sexually graphic film ever to be shown on national network TV. So, uh, not, yeah, not a huge success, but fantastic viewing figures. <laughs> <laughs> But also, you, you'd had a huge success before that with Felton Sings, and I yep. mean, you, and so you, and you, so you have had very, very good experiences with television. Felton Sings was just an amazing opportunity. We went into Felton Young Offenders Institute near Heathrow, and I wrote song lyrics for um, people serving time in the in in the in the prison. And um, one one of the astonishing things about that environment is that the the, the, the prison campus, if you like, is just full of peacocks. Uh, there are peacocks wandering around, sitting on top of the, the various cell blocks and so on and so forth. And all the blocks are named after, after birds. Uh, so, it, you know, there, there were obvious kind of writing opportunities. And the film did really well. It won a, won a BAFTA, uh, won a, a, an Ivan Novello award for the songwriting. And we, we really want to go back in there now. I can't, yeah. I can't remember. I think it might have been 2002. 
really want to go back in because I mean crime has changed uh, youth culture has changed the prisons have changed uh, but also I want to try and I, w- I would really like the opportunity of following up on the lives of some of those lads who were in the prison at that time who will be you know in their 30s and, and 40s Is now. the fact that you're Poet Laureate going to make doing that any easier? Do you, do you now have clout that you wouldn't have before? I mean apart from the fact that it impresses the shit out of me does it impress everybody else? Well one of the things about the Laureateship is that it is a royal appointment and however you, you feel about that uh, it gets you into rooms with people and uh, enables conversations that were, were difficult to, to generate previously. So um, we're, we're, we're fishing around at, at Feltham and uh, hopefully something might, might come, come up. Do you feel like you have a kind of superpower now? It does feel like with great power comes great responsibility, but I love the idea that you have a superpower, that you can now get into rooms with people and do things and change Without the opening the door. <laughs> that, that kind of superpower. <laughs> Uh, no, I still do the washing up. Do you wake up in the morning and think, I'm Poet Laureate? <laughs> oh, come on, you must do. So, other favourite films? <laughs> is, there a, do, do I have to, is there a title? Do you have a, a, you, your lordship, your highness, your regalness, O Queen? Is there... Uh, no, I, I, no, not that I, not that I uh, know of. No, I'm, I'm still, uh, I'm still just Sir Simon to you, Mark. <laughs> okay, I'm going to ask you one last thing, and then we're going to bring in our next guest. And I want you to stay, if that's all right, if you, unless you have some, some door to walk through magically. Um, has anybody at all in your? Because one of the things about you is you've always been brilliantly down to earth, and you're, you, you know, you're very good at kind of uh, knocking down any pretensions. Has anybody that you know, or in your family, or anything, said to you, yeah, Poet Laureate? I'll tell you a nicer story than that, actually. Uh, Because (laughs) I I mean, I suppose when when you embark on any kind of career or adventure of any kind, I think there's something in the back of your mind says that at some point in your life, you want to go back to your parents and say this worked out and I used to be a probation officer in Manchester and probably that was the point that was furthest away from the laureateship than than ever and when I gave that job up my dad who was also also a probation officer uh, I think was you know quite rightly fairly nervous because I was leaving, a, you know, a, a profession with a pension and security and all that kind of stuff at a time when there weren't many jobs to go and do poetry, which had no guarantees with it whatsoever. So it was just a, a really moving thing to to go back to my mum and dad and and say, uh, you know, this is this is this is kind of worked out really. And uh, he, he said to me because uh, my my granddad used to write a little bit, and my my dad said to me, um, if your granddad had been alive today, this would have killed him. <laughs> there's, a, there's a moment that you write about in one of your books in which you're going through a second-hand bookstore and you find... Do you want to tell this story better than... You could probably tell it better than me, so go ahead. Well, it's a slightly elaborated story, a kind of um, amalgamation of, of five or six different episodes, but uh, it, it's, it, it, it was about uh, the kind of most embarrassing... Uh, experience of, of being a poet and it was after a, a reading that hadn't gone very well waking up in a strange town one morning uh, trying to find the train station and walking through a precinct and seeing a, a dump bin outside a bookshop 
uh, which was which was full of books for ten pence, and having a look in there and finding a copy of one of my own books, uh, which was a signed copy, and uh, and uh, and uh, underneath the signature it said to mum and dad. But it's not true, right? You embellish the mum and dad. It's an amalgamation. It's an amalgamation of, <laughs> of experiences felt and experience. Okay. I am so pleased about the Laurent. I can't tell you how impressed I am. Nobody deserves it more than you. It's Thank brilliant. You. He's going to stay, but ladies and gentlemen, please round of applause for Simon. <laughs> As I said before, all this is going to go out on the Kermit on Film podcast, which uh, we were really thrilled the other day because we passed a million downloads. Uh, my next guest has a podcast which has 70 million, and it's just it's astonishing numbers. One of the most successful podcasts around from The Guilty Feminist. Please welcome Deborah Francis White. <laughs> It's a, it's a bit of an awkward step. Isn't yeah. it? I wasn't sure. I wanted to do it in a game. I'm a feminist, but I wanted that to be elegant. It wasn't. It was more elegant than me and Simon attempting to do it. <laughs> um, welcome to the show. Firstly, uh, congratulations on the extraordinary success of the Guilty Feminist podcast. How long has it been going? And how, how has it become so huge, other than the fact that it's brilliant and funny and very listenable? Um, it, it's become so huge because women are thirsty. That's that's the that's all it is. Like when we started at three and a half years ago, we had thirty people in the audience, twenty of whom I knew by name, uh, and ten of their mates, and we just played the Royal Albert Hall. And it's because there's not a lot of content that is made by women, directed towards women, that's allowed to come through the regular channels. Okay. If I'd gone to a television network or a radio station three and a half years ago and said I want to do a show with feminist in the title, they would have said no. Uh, because they just would have thought that wouldn't have sold. Yeah. And I, I'm constantly fascinated now by how many films and TV shows I watch where the point of view is consistently male and almost exclusively Caucasian, and you just keep on looking through the same eyes. And I was thinking, I watched It's a Wonderful Life yeah. uh, at Christmas, two Christmases ago with Susan McComa, who does the podcast yeah. a lot, who's an amazing, uh, fabulous actress, uh, who's a, a phenomenal black woman. And she was sitting there crying as Jimmy Stewart was thinking, oh, what if I'd never been born? And I thought, when does a white man ever look through a black woman's eyes at Christmas and cry? Never. It's never happened. If a white man watches a movie about a black woman at Christmas, it's because he's watching something foreign or niche. Do you know what I mean? It's like, and I've watched a film about black women. But it's just normal for, for people who aren't white men to just... We just we're just used to it. We're used to sort of getting into their bodies and making them the hero. And I think we've just built up so much empathy over time for white men for that reason. We've all built up a lot of empathy. And, we're, and so I feel like uh, it's, it's time. It's time to start saying there are other eyes you can look out of. And I think that's what the success of The Guilty Feminist is. For anyone who doesn't know, what's the, can you explain what Guilty Feminist, what you mean by that, why the podcast is called that? Yes, it's um, the guilty feminist is. Uh, it's basically the idea is, I wanted to be better at feminism. I wanted to take up more space in the world. I wanted to make the world a fairer place, and uh, but I kept thinking, I don't think I'm good enough. And 
I was talking to a comedian that I, I started the podcast with um, who, who's gone on to do other things now but and I'm uh, called Sophie Hagen and I was saying I just think I'm not good enough like I just don't think when I see these other feminists on stage I think yeah they're so strident and they know what they're doing and I don't and so we started the podcast with this cold open which is I'm a feminist but so we where we admit our paradoxes and insecurity so one of the first ones I did was I'm a feminist but one time I went on a women's rights march and I popped into a department store to use the loo and I got distracted trying out face cream. And when I came out, the march was gone. And I thought, oh my God, they're gonna kick me out of the club. But of course, oh, so many women went, I have also done that, or I've deliberately left a march because it was too crowded and I've ended up having a gin and tonic in a pub. You know, it's, it's so, so when we confess those things, you know, some of them are, some of them are film-based. I'm a feminist, but um, I secretly love, very problematic film, Pretty Woman, and in truth, I'm open to the idea of Richard Gere paying £3,000 to enter me on a grand piano. <laughs> True story. True story. Um, I'm a feminist, but I secretly have fantasies about being sexually dominated by famous fictitious misogynist Don Draper from Mad Men and truly believe if I met him, I could make him whole and heal his pain. I'm with you on Richard Gere, because I love Richard Gere. I just, I just love Richard Gere in anything. I think Richard, Richard, the best thing about Richard Gere is this, Richard Gere's entire acting, and I have no problem with this, is based on a single gesture, which is that he, he blinks, and then he closes his eyes, looks down to the left and exhales. So if he's doing something, oh. that, it's just genius, watch it. Like, so if it's, a, if it's an emotional moment, he'll do that. And then if, something, if somebody says to him, you know, and your mother's dead, he goes, and it's, oh. it's like a whole career. Wow. And, and the thing is, it's, it works for anything. He can be yeah. like a corrupt cop, or he can be you know, like a rock star. It doesn't matter what he's doing. He just, 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 and it, but it, it, when he, his head, and it's always, to, and, it, and I just, that's genius. That, um, that is Mark Bonner. I just made that'll an That'll go really well on the podcast on the audio, incidentally. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. I felt like I should describe it at the time. It's, it's up your blink rate. Look down to the left, exhale, look up, and that's that's the answer to uh, being a very famous, <laughs> very famous popular film star. Mark Bonner taught me. I just made a film. I wrote a film called Say My Name, which is like a screwball comedy. And Mark Bonner, do you know Mark Bonner? He's from. Uh, he's an amazing actor, Scottish actor, and he's in Catastrophe as the sort of slightly psychotic best friend, and he plays a bad guy in our film. And he taught me the psychopathic stare, which is such a nice man in real life. But he said, you put your head down and then just your eyes up and you penetrate the other person's eyes with your eyes. Which now I think about it, sounds rude. Um, but I'll try it on you. Okay. Awesome. Do I need to take my glasses off? No, it's me, I'm no, doing it. No, I know, but do I, okay, fine. I can penetrate your eyes with no, you while you've got your glasses okay, on. Fine, okay. If anything, it's protection, okay. Mark. <laughs> We've only just met. Okay. okay. I don't know why I've got the microphone up. <laughs> it's not audio. Again, this is great radio. To be honest, you just look a bit arch. You look, oh. you look, you look like you're going a bit like, ooh, you know, um, like, yeah. like. Have I done the carry on psychopath? <laughs> <laughs> there was a touch of ooh matron about it. Um, okay, so now you've, you've made a film, but it's taken, you, you first got a script optioned in Hollywood years and years ago. So tell us about your, your Hollywood experience. Uh, so in 2006, I sold a romantic comedy called The Wedding Pact. 
Um, and with, I'd written with two other friends, uh, Monica and Philippa, and we'd spent two years writing it and sort of having these fantasies that we would sell it in Hollywood, and then remarkably did. It was actually in LA. And we went over there, and once you've sold something, everyone else wants to meet you, because everyone's job in Hollywood is not to be fired. And so once somebody, and that's, this is, they have tracking boards so they don't get fired. Um, so once the boss of Fox Searchlight has read your script, the boss of every single other studio will read your script. Because if the film's a hit, and then the, then the head of Paramount will say to whoever was meant to be reading those scripts, why didn't I see that script? And the only answers then can be is, did. I didn't, yeah, yeah, exactly, that's the only right answer. The other answers are, I didn't read it, which in case you don't know the right agents, or I read it and passed on it, in which case you can't spot a script. The only right answer is you read it, I gave it to you, you passed on it. And that's the only thing that will stop you getting fired. So once you've sold a script, then everyone wants to meet you. Everyone's got to meet you. And we, at the beginning of the week, we had 15 meetings. At the end, we had 35 because they said we were three women and they then especially were only used to meeting like one geeky guy in a baseball cap or two geeky guys in baseball caps. And we were three women and we were all improvisers and actors. And so we, they said, we gave good meeting. That's what got around. Those girls give good meeting. And uh, so we were rocking up in all these places, having these funny experiences. And it, mostly it was women, 35-year-old women, who thought we could solve their relationship problems because we'd written a romantic comedy. And we were sort of like, I mean, he's in New York, I'm in LA, but he can move, I can't move. And we were like, what do you think? Because he really reminds me of Max in your script. And that was basically the meetings. And then we were pitching stuff, coming up with ideas in the car park to pitch. Um, and then finally, we got a meeting with what was said to be the, the most indie, indie um, sort of art house uh, production house in, in all of Hollywood. Yeah. They, as far as I could make out, they just remade Love in the Times of Cholera over and over. Uh, they were just people who adapted novels. So we didn't know where they wanted to meet us. And we went in and we pitched the most indie, sort of cheap thing we could think of, which basically wasn't a very good idea. It's basically like the plot of a sitcom. It's basically like a plot of an episode of Frasier, which is um, it was, um, two couples, uh, the, the man, uh, two heterosexual couples, the man of this couple and the woman of this couple end up New Year's Eve snowed into a, a hut in upstate, in a cabin in upstate New York, don't know each other. Uh, the other couple had a fling in college, this couple don't know, and they get snowed into a hair airport. And you, you track what these two couples are doing. So we pitch this, and this guy goes, I think my boss would really like this. Do you mind if we take, we, we take you in? So we go into this office, and there's a guy, basically, you know the orange guy? Um, don't, let a, don't let a mobile phone ruin your movie, that guy, the producer, would have had a big cigar if you could have smoked inside in Hollywood. <laughs> And he looked at us, and uh, this young guy went, oh, these girls have just sold a, a, um, a script to Searchlight. And he went, he looked at us and went, huh, sold a script to Searchlight, have you? Who's your agent? And uh, we went, oh, we don't really have an agent, we have a manager. And he went, that's bullshit. You're writers. You don't need a manager. You need an agent. How much is this manager taking from you? We went, I don't know, 15%. He said, that's bullshit. You get yourself an agent, you tell him you're going to give him 5%, then you tell him to go fuck himself. <laughs> and there was another guy in the room who he'd been having a meeting with, and he went, this is Andy. He works for IC. He's your new agent. He's your new agent. 
He just, we just, he just kicked shit out of me on this table. We went five rounds on this table, he kicked shit out of me. He'll get you the best deal. And then Angie goes, but you kicked shit out of me too. We kicked shit out of each other. We kicked shit out of each other. They basically got their penises out and measured them and we were just standing there going, oh my God. So I just went, okay, Andy, well, apparently you're our new agent. We'd like you to take 5% and go fuck yourself. <laughs> And this, this guy, uh, Drew, he went, he went, so you're funny. <laughs> Sit down and tell me about this idea. How long's your pitch? And we went, oh, five, five minutes. And he went, make it three. <laughs> I'm not making any of this up. I am aware it sounds like I am. So we tell him the story, you know, snowed in log cabin, snowed in our hair airport. And he went, could it be on the beach in Brazil? I got a lot of money down there. Beautiful weather. And we went, no, not really, no, because the only thing we've got is snow. <laughs> and he went, I got a lot of money in Brazil. It's beautiful down there. You tell me a love story set on the beach in Brazil. I want you to develop that movie. I'll make that movie. And we went, so they're on the beach in Brazil. <laughs> and the others are snowed in in our head, but we don't really see them. It's focused on the ones on the beautiful beach in Brazil. And he went... <laughs> And he said, um, and what are they talking about? And I said, we said, um, they're talking about monogamy, actually, because they're the wrong couple. Um, and the nature of flirtation and monogamy. He went, monogamy? I can't sell monogamy. Sex is what I can sell. You tell me a sexual awakening story set on the beach in Brazil. I will just develop that movie. I'll make that movie. And we went, so there's a, he's having a sexual awakening. <laughs> and we went, look, this isn't the thing for you, but we will go away and come up with something. And we did, and we pitched it. We were back in London, so we pitched it over the phone. And he, he heard it over the phone, and he went, um, <laughs> this, this, is, this is too graphic for this tent now, what he said. So I'll just cut to the bit where he said, do you have a lawyer? And I went, we went, yeah. He said, good, because I eat lawyers for breakfast. And cliches too, apparently. Um, and said, I'm gonna make this movie. You girls did a great job. Change the ending, but girls did a great job. And then we heard nothing. He kept putting it off and putting it off. And, my, and our manager was going, this is not right. They shouldn't say you've got a deal unless you've got a deal. They, they blow smoke up your ass, but they shouldn't say a deal unless you've got a deal. Anyway, there was the sort of the big independent film crash and everything. And then we read in the trades wait, while waiting for our deal. Because he kept saying, he kept saying throughout the whole thing, um, I want women to write this movie. I want women to write a sexual awakening movie. Set on the beach. Set on the beach. I want women to write it. Do you know what I, why I want women to write it? I don't want men to write it. Do you know what men will write? Porn. I don't want porn. I want magical realism. Like where the wind blows things in and shit. <laughs> like with Judy Dench, like Chocolat. You know what I mean? When the wind blows things in and shit? And we were like, yeah, we know, we know what you mean. Beautiful, not porn. And we were like, okay, okay, we can write that, we can write that. So when this, this went on for ages and ages and then we didn't, we didn't hear anything and the manager was chasing, we didn't hear anything and he was fobbing him off. And then we read in the trades, we read in Variety, that this same guy had just optioned The Anatomist, which is a book about the first, the man who discovered the clitoris. Good times. And, uh, and he, he had, the quote was, it's gonna be magical realism like chocolat and we all just went, not porn! And that was the end of our movie. And that is everything you need to know about Hollywood in one story. It's, uh, it's extraordinary for me listening to that because if I close my eyes, you could have been talking about the world of poetry. <laughs> Lawyers, agents, Hollywood, 
sending that new sonnet to Spielberg. <laughs> Do you have an agent? So is it, how does it work? In, I mean, poetry must be, it's much more, you know. It's, um, it's not a frontline art form in the, way that, uh, <laughs> in the way that others are, I think. Um, but uh, by, by its own choice, really. You know, it's, um, it's, it's an art form of, of dissent. So I think uh, whatever else is making the run in, in the world, poetry uh, tends, to, uh, tends to sort of cower away from that. Having said that, um, you know, the, there's, a, there's an incredibly energised spoken word scene at the moment and performance poetry scene, which, is, which has really been generated at, at festivals like this. Have you ever been asked to write a film? I, I've, I, I was on that, uh, that circuit for a while. Uh, I, I wrote a novel called Little Green Man and kept uh, writing and rewriting and doing further drafts of a, of a screenplay for it. And uh, I have to say it was incredibly uh, lucrative, uh, but I, I just found it creatively not very satisfying. I was just sort of going round and round in circles. And I, I think what I just had, somebody just needed to say to me, look, it's a film, uh, one problem, one solution. I was trying to get all the, the intricacies of each paragraph of the novel uh, into into the into the script, and that, and that just wasn't working. I was when I was watching you, and I was off stage. I was sitting next to a Syrian man who's incredibly articulate. His English, he's he's got the kind of English where he knows the difference between infer and imply, and uh, he, he's he's very erudite. But he just leaned over to me because he's only been in the country two years, and he went, "What's a laureate? Is it some kind of wine taster?" <laughs> I said, "Apparently, yes." <laughs> Turns out. <laughs> now, Simon, you said earlier on when I asked you about your favourite films, uh, you said you talked about Bourne, but you said obviously anything by Richard Curtis. And I, I know definitely you'll be a huge Richard Curtis fan as well because, frankly, who isn't? Who isn't? Who isn't? I genuinely am, and uh, that's made it sound like you're not. <laughs> no, no, I re- but I really am. I really am. My favourite film in the world is The Apartment, and uh, I love with all my heart really really love the tall guy and four weddings and a funeral and I got to be in the I got to be a featured extra as I'm telling my friends um, who spotted me in the four weddings comic relief where are they now it was so it was like a fantasy come true for me a featured extra means that you have a line no, you no, just okay. loll around, right, and but you're so you're feature. somebody. You're somebody that they hope people will go. Oh, it's oh, her at the wedding guest. Okay. No, I've bigged my part up there. I should have said I was an extra. Okay. But what Emma said to me, Richard's wife, probably to flatter me, yeah. you're a featured extra, okay. which means I was getting to talk to Andy McDowell, who gave me some fucking great advice, by the way. She was incredible because I was just about to do this photo shoot. I'd never done a front cover of a, of a magazine before, so I was asking posing advice from her, and. Lily James and so the three of us were talking um, Lily said oh um, I find with posing for photo shoots the best thing is to look a little tired or a little bit grumpy and just sort of do that and then you get these really sultry pictures and Andy said oh no that's for women under 30 don't give her that advice she was like when you're over 30 it's lift 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 she was like yes you can lull when you're 29 31 lift Really good advice, and it was really genuinely sisterly advice. It was, a, and I and I really did lift, and it worked. <laughs> All of which is a very strange way of getting round to our next guest, which is Richard Curtis. <laughs> yeah, otherwise it would be all too cramped. 
Richard, welcome to the show. Lovely to have you back. Um, yesterday was shown at Latitude. Yesterday. Yes. And of course, I was disappointed. Simon wasn't in the audience. I'm skeptical of his enthusiasm for my like oeuvre. You, ha you have him here. But was it because he'd already seen it? Do you think, or do you think he was writing a poem? I don't know. Should, we, should, should we shamelessly quiz him? <laughs> no, that's not. It'll just go badly. So, um, don't ask me about his poems either. So, uh, I know there's a great one about Batman. Yes. Um, so anyway, so yesterday played at Latitude. Yesterday, yeah. and there are scenes in Latitude in yesterday that are shot at Latitude. Were yeah. they shot here last year, or did you recreate Latitude for the purpose of the? No, no, no. We shot here yeah, last, last year. year. Yeah, we were wandering around. It was a lovely day. We got um, lots of great people, and we actually shot more than we than we used. Uh, tragically, there was meant to be a section where the hero was going around looking at other bands and seeing he was worse than them and one of the bands we shot was my son's band but he got he got cut even before the assembly of the wow movie. you cut your own son out of a film yeah yeah he wasn't a featured extra i mean featured extra hashtag featured extra i think that basically means taller than the other extras that's, <laughs> that's basically a featured a, extra is over five foot six I was, I was in a very long red coat that stood out i wanted to wear my fascinator that says feminist in feathers yeah. but unfortunately it was in the wrong part of london um as is often happens it was with my milner unaccessible can I just say, if we're playing this game of one-upmanship, I had a speaking part in Absolutely Fabulous. Thank you very much. I remember that. I oh. actually remember that. I delivered a line. What was the line? Would you like to hear the line? Yes, please. Yeah. It was marvellous. I was very good. And I didn't get the joke until afterwards when I saw, that, saw, it, saw it back. It was um, that uh, I was meant to be very entranced by some, uh, some cabaret singer who couldn't actually sing. And... Somebody said, uh, oh, have you seen her before? And I said, I don't believe I said this without getting the joke. I said, I've always been a fan of her bouche. And then, and then it was only when I watched it on television. Oh, it's a pun. I didn't get it. And then it got a big laugh, but I was more of a, because I hadn't realised that it was a rude joke. Because bouche means end. B-O-U-C-H-E. Yeah, like bouche. rear. Is I don't know what it means. Let's ask Simon. He'll know what it means. It's a French in, word. In, in French, it means bouche mean? end, doesn't it? Mouth. 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 The bouche. Right. Ferme la bouche. Yes. Yeah, amuse bouche. Yes. Amuse bouche. Oh, yes, it does. Sorry. It doesn't mean it amuses your end. It means it's, it amuses your, your mouth. Anyway, oh, yes. It's quite anyway. weird. Both words we've asked Simon about are French. Because recherche is French, isn't it? I still don't know what I don't think he means. should be expected to know both English and French. I think, I think English is enough. He recently did a brilliant translation of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which I know is not technically another... I mean, it's, it, it, you know, translation is one of the things that he got the laureate for. <laughs> it does feel like we're picking on him, so I think we should... You can call me by my name. <laughs> No, do you know, I increasingly uh, love poetry. I'm, I'm reading more and more of it. I have a kind of... Um, it's, it's nice to know when you've got shallow feelings what might be underneath, you know, and actually the poets serve that purpose. They take things, you have a tiny instinct is happening to you and then reveal 
as it were, what might be the cause of it. I, I'm finding it. Although, oddly, I don't like poems I don't agree with. Do you know what I mean? If they go off and say everything in the world is horrid, I slightly lose interest, whereas if they say there's hope. But I find poetry more and more necessary. And on the feminism front, I notice an enormous amount of quoting of poetry and back reference. And didn't they, did they, the squad just quoted that poem by Maya Angelou, didn't they, as an answer, yeah. as yes. an answer to Trump? actually, as it were, spiritual evidence of that which is right and wrong. Mm. I think it was called I Will Rise, is and that right? And Still I Rise. Yeah, and Still I Rise. It, it, we just had that, we just, um, we just played the Royal Albert Hall, and the second act, we opened with um, a speech that uh, Emmeline Pankhurst had given at the Royal Albert Hall in 1908. She'd been released from prison unexpectedly and said, take me to the Royal Albert Hall, where the WSPU were having a rally. And there was a chair on stage, sort of, it was meant to be metaphorical because they knew Emmeline was in prison. When she walked out, the crowd went wild. And she gave this speech, which presumably she was knocking up in prison in case she got released. Um, and it start, the excerpt we used, it was Juliet Stevenson, just a spotlight came on her and it started with, they say that women have no sense of humour. Um, which, of course, is just... Uh, we've been saying the same things for so long, you realise. And then it went up to... The spot went up to the, the choir and Susan McComa was there and she did And Still I Rise. And we, we continued on um, with 15 women all doing readings. And I was surprised by how much poetry we used because it, it demonstrated how women through the ages of different races and different uh, sexual orientations have been saying the same thing for so long. Um, and I, I'm interested in using more poetry now, so I feel. So Simon, is poetry on the rise in that case? So is it more relevant than ever? I think it's more prevalent in, in people's lives and I, I think there's a lot of overtly political poetry around now, probably in response to our, our current circumstances. I was just thinking actually of um, you know, those, those great moments in, in film where poetry is uh, sort of you know, coalesced. It's brought about a, a particular moment. I mean, of course, in in four weddings and a funeral, the uh, the Auden poem, "Funeral Blues," has, has become one of the great film moments. And people often talk about that as uh, I think I think that's actually a moment that's turned people on, tuned people in to poetry. And um, I was thinking about that. Is there a film? Is it Rumblefish? The film Rumblefish. Yeah, Rumblefish. Yeah. Um, and I, I remember hearing sort of snippets of of, of poetry and that, just as as it sort of moved away from from dialogue, and in um, Terence Malick's Thin Red Line, some of those inner thoughts that just come drifting through as lines of internal monologue poetry, incredibly, incredibly strong. Yeah. Um, I, I particularly enjoyed in the comic relief Four Weddings and a Funeral uh, sequel, in which I was a featured extra, that uh, <laughs> the album was replaced by Ed Sheeran. <laughs> yeah, another great contemporary poet. Um, look, I want to talk a little bit about yesterday. Can we, can we just, from a promotional point of view, because I really like, can we just oh, show yeah. the trailer of yesterday? Would you mind if we do that? Well, Simon's already seen the film, so he won't know, be. Yeah, he won't be very. Well, no. Yeah, this might tempt you, Simon. Just okay, watch yeah, it. Out of out of home. Here we go. Here we go. Until a month ago, you were a complete failure, and then somehow you became the biggest star in the world, as if by magic. So what happened? Oh. Uh, 
yesterday All my troubles seem so far away Oh, I believe in yesterday When did you write that? I didn't write it. Paul McCartney wrote it. The Beatles. Who? John, Paul, George and Ringo, the Beatles. No. Stop it. Yesterday. It's one of the greatest songs ever written. Well, it's not Coldplay. It's not Fix You. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I, I have to tell you, I, I mean, you know anyway, but I, I loved it. I, I sat there in the screening room and I was on my own. There wasn't anybody else there. I had like a private screening because I'd missed the National Press Show. And I, I felt, I started crying. One of the things I love doing in the cinema more than anything is crying. Crying. And, <laughs> no, I, I love it. It's because it's, that's, you know, they, cinema is a machine for empathy and, and crying is, an, you know, an empathetic experience. And I laughed and cried my way through the movie. I, I just, you know, I, I absolutely loved it. Um, obviously, it's directed. Well, thank you very much well, no, indeed. But you know, obviously, it's directed by by Danny Boyle. Oh, Danny Boyle. But it is very much. I can't do. I can't say Danny. Oh, Danny Boyle. Without doing that, it is very much a film to Richard Curtis, isn't it? Well, it's like better directed than the the last three. I was very disappointed by my last director's work. Um, But Danny's made films in lots of genres. You know, as it were, he has done sci-fi, social realism, uh, you know, all the things that he's done. Uh, Man with arm trapped in rock genre. It's a small genre. Uh, Very small genre. And and so I, I would hope, as it were, that he would reflect the romance and the comedy of it. But I just think he's done it really well with a good sort of different... Uh, energy and visual imagination and all those things he he does so wonderfully. How did you go about getting the the, the clearances to the songs? Because you've got there's loads of Beatles songs in it. Yeah. Presumably you had to get individually the remaining Beatles to sign off on it. I, I think uh, the Beatles have a you know wonderfully constructed system around them, and I think if it had been a movie about a serial killer who loves Beatles music, they would have said no. So they reached a sort of general judgment. that it looked like it would be okay and that the plot was okay. Uh, And since all the songs are covers until the very final moment, as it were, they didn't have to commit the actual Beatles originals to it. So on balance. But they gave us this amazing deal where we could have any 17 
songs. We could pick any of them for a sort of lump price. And every single one of them, he said up until the very end, is performed by Himesh Patel. He's performing live. It, that's him playing and singing. Always him playing and singing because it would have been dreadful to dub. In fact, one of the, one of the scenes I'm most uncomfortable with in the movie, if anyone sees it, see if you can spot it. There's a scene just over there next to the film tent and the comedian tent where there was a very, very noisy comedian going on. So we had to, we did, it's like one of the key scenes of the movie and we had to dub that over in post and, and I can tell. So you know. It's like Himesh's voice has dropped okay. since when we shot it. The, the idea came from an idea that you and somebody else had some time ago. Where, what was the germ of the idea? No, no, no. What happens? I actually got a phone call from my friend Nick Angel to say that he had a film by this guy Jack Bath right. with this idea. And I said, look, I, I'm nervous about adapting things. But as it were, if you want me to write a film about that idea, I'd love to because I'm obsessive Beatles fan. I'd love to have a conversation with Simon sometime about where he thinks pop music fits in in poetry because as it were you know Dylan won that yeah, yeah. won the Nobel Prize for Literature didn't he and, and he was the, so gracious the, about it the, the, <laughs> lovely the, speech he gave the more I listen to the Beatles music the more I'm impressed actually by the lyrics there's a line I'm really haunted by and she's leaving home that line where it says they read the note that she hoped would say more it's so tragic that, she, that neither of them get what they wanted out of the words that she leaves them with. So I've just been an obsessive Beatles fan from seven till 63. So the idea of writing, spending two whole years in their company was, you know, utter, utter joy. But will you still need them when you're 64? Oh, do you know what? I, I have started looking into hotels on the Isle of Wight. I've actually started researching and I think we're gonna go there. I'm trying to find three friends called Vera, Chuck, and Dave who we can who we can take with us. Okay, look, if I can't find a Vera. So, so Simon, are you a Beatles fan? Yeah, Beatles fan. Yeah, they're pretty good. Um, <laughs> I've, I've enjoyed uh, I've enjoyed their music. I, I, I was um, yeah, I was thinking about what you were saying, Richard. I mean, um, I have very sort of strong views about poetry and, and song lyrics that they are two very different art forms that you know in, in the Venn diagram of the two things there is a, a cross hatched area in the middle but they're you know they're they're both very uh, exacting art forms and I think one of the interesting things about song lyrics is that if you if you take them away and you give them to people who don't know the tunes and I've done this with my students you know these are these are sort of youngish kids who've never really heard Dylan or the Beatles and you present them to them they don't think much of them they're, they're, they're kind of like poems but they do everything that we tell them not to do in a poem, you know, cheesy rhymes, hypermetric syllables, mixed metaphors, all that kind of thing. The thing that is astonishing about a song lyric is the, the way it works with this stuff that we don't really understand called music. And the music quite often supplies the emotional content. So in a song, you can write la 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 la, and if you put that in combination with the right chord change, it can be absolutely transformative. If you put la 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 in a poem, probably not going to work that well, really. Um, but it, you know, it, the, the the emotional content uh, of a song is, is is more than usually provided by something to do with an instrument or or the yeah. tone of voice. But I think they can be remarkable too. I remember people always saying to me, "What, what would you, what 
poem would you read at a wedding? And I seem to remember there was a poetry book called For Weddings and Funerals. And I still think that the lyrics of Let It Be Me by the Everly Brothers are the best poem, even without the words. And I remember when my sister died at her funeral, my brother read uh, uh, a song by the Waterboys called Everlasting Arms. And that was the best thing that we could find. So I think it's where within that format are many great things, even though it's where they don't work as poems, but it's just the most mystical use of of, of language. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a favourite Beatles line or a favourite Beatles couplet? Um, well, aren't these all the kind of questions that you should have asked me to think about yesterday? <laughs> well, if I thought about them yesterday, Simon, but the... the yeah. Seems your troubles were so far away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Come, come back to me. Okay. <laughs> Deborah. Uh, I think picture yourself in a boat on a river is just Oh, yeah, that's stunning. mine, too. <laughs> It's actually I mean, a description of latitude, isn't yeah. it, really? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Go on, Richard, favourite favorite Beatles couplet or line? Oh, I have no idea. Bright are the stars that shine, dark is the sky. Oh, that's I know this love oh. of mine will never die, Very and good. I love her. Very good. Blackbird, the lyrics of Blackbird. Um, Himesh actually was here this weekend, and he played it on the guitar, and it just, there's just something about that. Every word of Blackbird yeah. is just will break your heart. My I think it's one of the greatest songs ever written. My friend Matt O'Casey, who I played with yesterday on the on the stage, been in front of me for ages. We've been in bands together, and if him playing Blackbird will absolutely reduce everybody to tears. It's such a beautiful song, and he plays it so brilliantly. I still think the best Beatles, and I always get it wrong. Um, I, I came to the Beatles late because my wife Linda is a huge Beatles fan, and it was one of those things that you know I brought. The Who, and she brought Led Zeppelin and the Beatles, and it took me a long time to get into it. And it's and in the end, the love—it's either the love you make is equal to the love you take, or the love you take is equal to the love you make. I always get it wrong, yeah. but it is still my favourite cup because it is because it's the end of that. It's the final lyric they ever wrote just, too. Is it? Yeah. yeah oh, well, there we go. The last, is it? Even better choice. Yeah. What? How do you know that? Um, it just is. It's the last thing on the last album. Like um, the last line that Oscar Hammerstein ever wrote was love a bell's not a bell till you ring it a song's not a song till you sing it and love in your heart wasn't put there to stay love's only love when you give it away and that was the last thing that he ever wrote oh, Richard yeah this is magnificent. and this is the man who wrote you know this what do we do about a problem like Maria so there were very high standards the thing is really weird. by the way we seem to be entering a golden age of musicals I was yeah, just reading no, an article about it. Oh, it's yeah, very it interesting. Mm. What with, you know, The Lion King and La Rocket La Land Man. and Rocketman and everything like that. And I think it's going to lead to original musicals. Yeah, Danny yeah. Boyle, who I've just done this with, says Boyle. that... Uh, <laughs> Danny Boyle says it's like this was his launching pad and he hopes yeah. someone's going to ask him to do a new musical because I do think... I remember being on holiday in Cromer and we'd been promised glamping but glamping's just camping when it rains. Yeah. <laughs> and you, we woke up at 10 and we thought we've got 14 hours. What are we going to do? And and Mamma Mia was on, the first one, yeah, yeah. at 1 o'clock in the afternoon and it was like the happiest two hours no, almost of my life, let alone of my, <laughs> of my day. But I, I'm really excited about that because they were so huge when I was 
young musicals in yeah. cinema, and I think it's uh, no. I th- I genuinely think musicals are, and I think the thing that's wonderful about Rocketman, I know it's an existing uh, song catalogue, but I think what Lee Hall does so brilliantly is it is a musical. It's not a film with mm. songs in it. It is actually constructed beginning to end as a musical, and. I, th- I did a program uh, a while ago about Oscar-winning films, and musicals are one of, historically one of the most reliable winners of best films. So throughout throughout cinema, cinema has been used for musicals. So will will you be writing musicals now? I don't know. I don't know about that. I want to move on, on to the subject of women in film. Oh, can since I? we've got Deborah, because I think there's a really interesting thing happening here that there are like lots of really amazing young actresses and not lots of amazing young actors at the moment. I don't know quite what's happened, but if you think of who you think are most brilliant now, as it were, you know, from Saoirse to Chloe Moretz to all the girls who are really extraordinary to Brie Larson to Jennifer Lawrence, you can't name the young generation of young men who are as interesting. And I think a really weird thing's happening that in the movies, women can be interesting and men are meant to be the sort of boring leads. We've got into an era of male stereotypes, whereas with men just have to be handsome and have nice bodies and they're not being encouraged. And I think we're in an era, again, I think with musicals, basically, if you look at the best Young and men nominations, they're all dull and astronauts and things like that. And the you're women, dull and astronauts, yeah. Well, by, <laughs> yeah. Defi- by definition, like going I think. to the moon, you know. Um, but anyway, that, I, I'm really excited and interested. I think we're also entering a glorious period of women in women yes, in film, but in I particular. Think that's why I'm interested in screwball comedy. So, the film I made, Say My Name, is an old fashioned screwball comedy because if you go back to that era. It was all kind of Catherine Hepburn walking around saying, I can run a newspaper as well as you or any man, and I can kiss as well as you or any man, but kiss me, but don't, but do. And the man was trying to catch up to the woman all the time. Those were, they were always more interesting characters. Um, so uh, that, for me, is, I think, where I'm stealth going to bring that back. So Say My Name is, he's definitely trying to keep up with her, and she's the interesting one. But, the, the, I mean, the key thing with some, is during the, the most successful period of cinema... You know, 30, 40, 50, the, the, the movies that sold the most were movies that we now refer to as women's pictures, but back then because women audiences outnumbered male audiences. So that was the backbone of cinema. The whole idea that cinema was created for teenage boys is a very, very you know, yeah. recent one. But the, uh, another thing which is difficult, again, I credit my wife for this, she's been involved in this project called Calling the Shots, which is doing the the actual numbers on how many uh, uh, British uh, women working in the British film industry are directors, producers, writers, and the percentages are tiny. Yeah. Like 16% in any of those categories is enormous. Oh, she's, she's over there going lower, lower. So percentage of women, so 10, 12, it's that kind of figure? Yeah, fine. She's literally working me with her foot from over there. I'm just, you know. So it is still really, really, I mean, the, the way things will change is that is that the gender of the people that are making the films will change. The, the sh- there was a short film festival in Australia and they kept saying the entries that they got in, they, you, know, they, you, you enter and then it gets curated, and they kept saying we can't get above 10% female directed or written or both films. And so somebody said, why don't we do gender-blind submissions? 
And do you know what happened when they did gender-blind submissions? In one year, it went from 10% to 50%. Because we project as a, tr as a tribe, as a society, who, who we decide is good at things like this. So, and we all do it. Women do it too. If you suddenly were given half a million quid and you had to invest it with somebody, you'd probably want to give it to a white man in a grey suit. Because who's good with money? Those people. Um, we all have this idea, and this is why films have such a great responsibility, because they seduce us with who's good at, what does a CEO look like, what does a president look like, uh, what does an astronaut look like. They're constantly seducing us. And women on a film set, I know this from my friends who are directors, um, there is the same reaction to a woman on a film set that there is to a female pilot. Have you ever been on a plane and had a female pilot and having the voice come on going, hello, I'm Captain Jane Sylvester. What happens every single time? There's little jokes that run around. Oh, I hope she can land it. Oh, I hope she's not on her period. And she knows that. She knows that. And that's partly because we're more frightened of being in the sky than on the ground. And if anything's different on a plane, you know, if you got on a plane and all the seats were backwards, I'd want to know why. Because all of the planes I've not died on have had the, the seats facing forward. <laughs> And all of the planes I've not died on so far have had male pilots, bar one or two. Um, so, so uh, yeah, th th but the pilot knows that. She knows that. She knows that if there's turbulence, she will be blamed. So she's flying with this extra weight of expectation. She knows when she goes into the pilot's lounge that some of the pilots are a bit like, mm, and some of them are so keen to show that they are fine with the woman pilot. They're like, hello, Jane, sit down. I read The Guardian. You know, it, it, she knows it's not normal. And so she flies with that extra weight of expectation. Same things will happen in the comedy tent if you walk out, probably not here, but in lots of regional comedy clubs. I have been brought on by a, by a compere, the only woman on the bill, and I've been brought on by the male compares. The next one's a woman one, but don't worry, she's funny, I've seen her. And that's your starter for 10. And you walk on stage and you see people in the front row say to each other with their mouths in front of your face, I don't find women funny. I don't like female comedians. So you have to spend the first five minutes of the set or the first two hours of the flight getting over that. And that's what happens to women in film, that there's an expectation projected upon you that you're not up to the job. <coughs> I, think, I, I think telly's helping hugely at the moment. That's my instinct. I don't know, but I think that what with Fleabag and with Killing Eve that are both written and directed by women and with Catastrophe and Sharon Horgan and Chewing Big Little Lies and things like that. I really think that TV's going to set the path and that's going to bend very quickly. Yeah. God, face. Simon, you must be relieved that Carol Ann Duffy came before you. Otherwise, it'd be, you'd be in really tricky waters, wouldn't you? Well, it was, a, you know, it was an important conversation that, that poetry had to have. Uh, you know, the, the laureateship is one of those traditions and rituals that goes as far back as anybody can remember or research. And um, uh, when Carol Ann was, was made uh, laureate, it was absolutely essential for, not just for the fact that she's a fantastic poet, but uh, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, a similar thing's been happening in, in, in poetry. I mean, like all endeavors, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not there yet. Um, but it, it's been really interesting over the last 10 years to see how publishing and, and poetry has been changing. I mean, 30 years ago when I started writing, you could look at poetry from the outside and think it was a pretty monocultural activity. Mm. And that's definitely not the case yeah, now. Yeah. Um, particularly, you know, people from diverse backgrounds, you know, 
not as represented to the to the extent that they would like and and that they should be uh, but the situation's definitely changed and i think particularly in relation to to women writers i think mm. that probably the most exciting poets around at the moment are, are, are women writers yeah. but it's important for men too for women it's not just important to minorities that they be represented it's important to the dominant group it's important for white people to hear more black and brown voices it's important for us to realize we're not the only people in the world and if we keep on hearing the same thing over and over again we get seduced into thinking that we're where it's at and that's an alternative experience it's not alternative to be brown if you're brown it's your whole life it's not a minority experience for you and that that we can it's i'm i started this podcast the guilty feminist really to wallow in my own oppression and marginalization what i've learned about more than anything is my own privilege I have started to understand the white woman experience is, and it is a, such a privileged one. I can run towards law enforcement anytime I want. If I cry, yesterday I was trying to get to a stage, I'd had one of those festival fiascos where you're wandering around outside and you've got to get to your hut and then someone's meant to meet you in a buggy, etc. It doesn't matter. The point is, I was rushing to a stage and this man said, you've got to go back and stand in that queue and have your bad check. And I just thought, I'm going to miss my show. So I just cried. I mean, I did cry genuinely, but also I knew what would happen. He went, don't worry, go through. Do you think if I was a black woman, that would have happened? Do you think if I was a brown man, that would have happened? If, imagine, if a, imagine if a Middle Eastern man went, I don't want to have my bag checked. He'd have everything checked. Everything checked. So it's, not, it's, it's important for all of us to be hearing these voices and seeing these things, and it's not enough. What we're doing now is going... Oh, you know, uh, let's have a white man, a white man, a white man, a white man, and a black woman who can be a best friend. If you're not empathising with her, if you, if she, if we don't follow her, when when she leaves, it doesn't matter. It's not it's not not relevant at all. It's great to have her there, but it, what matters is we see it through her eyes and we feel it through her skin and we understand what that experience is. And that's where we've got to get with poetry, with film, with television, with novels, with everything. We've got to start looking through other people's eyes. It's so important and it's never going to change it, we, unless we do. It's the reason Trump is in power because we all empathise with white men. It's the reason Trump got into power. Hollywood is a lot to blame. We've only been empathising with white men for 100 years. Um, can I... Yeah. Can I say a weird area where that's weirdly true since I'm sitting next to Mark? Yeah. So I was saying to someone that our movie was at 60% on um, Rotten Tomatoes. Well, you which don't knows go anywhere near Rotten Tomatoes. Is, no, no, it's the website. Thing. No, 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 but this is yeah, very relevant sure. to your point. And the person who said to me said, they're all men and your fans are mainly yeah, yeah. women. And I went and I looked and there were 40 women critics and they gave the movie 75%, and there were 220 male critics, and they gave the movie 40%. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So actually, one of the issues about f movies in particular is that they tend to be reviewed yeah. by people who aren't representative of the people who are actually making the movies. And even though 
Christ knows what species Camilla Long is, but um, I think generally it would be great if there were more, if in the critical community, yeah. newspapers and everyone no, changed listen, all that. I don't think you think? That, I think it's absolutely true, and I, I also think it's it's some it's a conversation which is now finally starting. I mean, I write for The Observer, which, and I'm very, very lucky that on The Observer I share the film pages with Wendy Eyde and Simran Hans. Simran, I think, okay, is, one of the, cool. is one of the youngest uh, critics to have a national... Uh, newspaper because she's brilliant and Wendy has been writing for many years and is a brilliant writer and they are both better writers than I am um, and actually there are really great female uh, film critics and there always have been but it is absolutely true that it is possible sometimes to look around a screening room and go these I mean I'm a 57 year old white bloke what does it matter what I think I mean I love your movies but um, but you know I do where I'm a but and um, but it, 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 it has to change and I think it is starting to change but like everything else it's really really slow I mean all the way through film criticism you know whether it's uh, you know Dennis Powell or whether it's Pauline Kael there are, there are these kind of great but they they have always been numerically in the minority the problem with going to Rotten Tomatoes is twofold firstly what are you doing going to Rotten Tomatoes just stop it here's how Rotten Tomatoes works right an aggregator machine that if one person says this film is the best film I have ever seen and this, other, and this other person says this film is the worst film I have ever seen the aggregator goes it's alright that's literally what an aggregator does it just turns everything into it's alright and secondly you just see that numerically it is that whole sort of swathe of people who look exactly the same so yes it has to change stop going to Rotten Tomatoes it's bad for everybody oh. and and support the film that's literally going to save me an hour a day I'm great but <laughs> yeah. I keep on checking whether I've gone up and, ch and, and ch you know and, and champion the critics who are saying that. I mean like I said like, like this morning I tweeted uh, six of Simran's reviews that she wrote for the Observer they're brilliant they're brilliantly written they're insightful and smart and I don't agree with all of them there's a film that I really like that she doesn't really like but she writes about it in a way that makes me go god if I could only create a sentence that that good so it is starting to change but it is really really slow um, people have been doing this meaning that we, we that five minutes three minutes so we, we're gonna have to sort of start drawing things to a close um, I just want final thoughts Richard being here with the film at latitude where it was shot and then you know yeah I is it a lovely warm sense of you know closure and you know it all got done and it worked out brilliantly and Mark loved it so that's great it is lovely I mean one of the things that I uh, most cherished about Danny taking on the film is the first boy. thing he said is I want to spend a lot of time in Suffolk yeah. and I think there is a great tradition of small British movies written by people who really knew you know from uh, Gregory's Girl to Rita Sue and yeah. Bob too you know people are actually writing movies so it's a great joy to write about the place that you know and be back in the place that you know and to hear that I think I think the Leyston cinema has got the highest percentage in the country for people going to see the movie we're fighting off the Lion King <laughs> with with every performance so it is very good to be back yeah. fantastic Deborah, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Do you think that things are getting better, and when can we see your film? When's it going to be released? Uh, so it's going to be—it's been—it's already been released in America. It's had a, like a limited release with Odeon here, but it's been going to be released in the UK later this year, I think, in the autumn. Great. I will let you know when. 
Um, and if you could just watch it on your own time, Mark, and if you don't like it, just cross the road when you see me coming. Okay. That's, that's enough. If you do like it, obviously, tell Don't everyone. offer him that option. Tell him to give it a good review. Just, just say, give it a I, good review, no matter. His integrity oh, isn't okay. that important. If you, t- if you don't Seriously. give it... Seriously. If, if you don't give it a good review, you don't like women. Yes. And yes. You're not encouraging yes. women in film. I mean, I, yes. how's it going to change, gang? How's it going to change? Yeah. That's the thing. Um, so, uh, so yes, uh, Say My Name will be out uh, later in the year and I will be singing about it. I'm on, on Twitter, I'm at Deborah FW or at Guilt Film Pod. So if you follow either of those, you'll be able to see yeah. when it comes out. And I love it. I think it's great. Oh, um, that's on the poster. <laughs> Simon? I, I really like it as well. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet, but I think it's fantastic. Thank you. Great. That's on the poster, but I'll just use the bit where it says I think it's fantastic. And then I'll say Simon Armitage after some sherry. After a vat of sherry. Simon, would you get... Um, I know, I'm sorry, I'm not meant to do this, but you're the Poet Laureate, it's your job. Can you bring things together with a, with a poetic phrase? How would you like to end this uh, session? Oh, wow. Something that's... It's his job! Yeah. 6.20, speakeasy tent. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Simon Simon Arpty, Tim Frost, White, Richard Curtis, thank you so much. Thank this you. has been the Covered on Film podcast. Enjoy Latitude! So that was the Kermit on Film podcast recorded live on a Sunday morning at the Latitude Festival. Hope you enjoyed it. Maybe we'll be there again next year. If you enjoyed the podcast, remember, tell your friends and subscribe. Thanks for listening. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.